From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we're going to be focusing on the US presidential election. My special guest is Anne-Marie Slaughter, one of America's best-known public commentators. I'll be talking to her about fear and loathing in American politics and what there still is to be optimistic about. She tells me about the prospects for radical change in the United States. I think about that a lot. It is not impossible that you would have something that looks more like revolution. And what it would mean to have Hillary Clinton in the White House. I do think it's very significant that she would be the first grandmother president. And I point out all the time that she did not start her political career until her daughter Chelsea went to college. First, to our regular panel, which I'm delighted to say has a new member this week. Along with Finbar Livesey, an expert on public policy, and Chris Brook, an expert on political theory, we're joined by Aaron Rapport, who's an expert on US foreign policy. Firstly, Aaron, we'll be hearing various different perspectives on Hillary Clinton in this podcast. What does her candidacy mean to you? Well, Hillary Clinton's candidacy from a foreign policy perspective, which is what I generally study, so I'll try to stay within my bailiwick, is arguably one of the first explicitly feminist candidacies. Uh, There's an excellent book that came out recently called The Hillary Doctrine by Valerie Hudson and uh, Patricia Lydell, where they go through the history of Hillary first really kind of bursting onto the the national stage when uh, her husband, of course, was elected as as president. But in 1995, uh, speaking in Beijing at International Women's Rights Conference, famously saying the quote, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. From that point on, she has worked pretty hard to make women's rights part of the agenda, uh, calling them crucial not only for humanitarian reasons, but for national security reasons as well. Now, she's also got the reputation of being something of a feminist or imperial feminist hawk, which is actually a term that Hudson and Lydell, they don't apply to her, but they basically quote other people saying it. And this is because she was uh, a supporter of or voted for the Iraq war, voted for the authorization for use of military force in Afghanistan, and is seen as something of a liberal interventionist. And you can contrast this with Bernie Sanders, who some argue is the actual feminist candidate because war is so bad for women. So Sanders, of course, who's polling neck and neck with Hillary right now in Iowa, voted against the first Gulf War, voted against the 2003 Iraq War. On the other hand, uh, he supported uh, U.S. intervention in the Balkans, just as Hillary did. He supported the use of force in Afghanistan as, as well. That's my general take on Hillary. It's kind of a double-edged sword uh, for her, I think, amongst uh, especially the left wing of the Democratic Party because of this bumping up of feminist credentials, but something of a very hard, hawkish edge to her as, as well in promoting those principles. Thanks, Aaron. Do visit our website, where this week's blog is by Lizzie Presser, and it's on feminism and the election. Before I come to Finbar and Chris, We wanted to introduce some additional voices to this podcast to make sure we're not just stuck in our Cambridge bubble an ocean away. We asked a reporter to take some of our questions onto the streets of New York, which for better or worse is a city that's providing the focal point for many of the candidates in this campaign, to gather the views of some local voters. This week, Galen Druk went to speak to customers at a nail bar in Brooklyn. I'm outside the nail boutique in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. It's a small salon, always full of women, talking, drinking, and having their nails manicured. The neighborhood, Bedford-Stuyvesant, is largely African-American. I should mention, 
I am both white and a guy, so I'm not the usual crowd here. But these women have graciously agreed to chat with me about a pretty sensitive topic. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Okay, all right, well, I'm gonna have my first manicure right now. Am I gonna be able to touch anything once we start? Yeah. Okay. Just tap your fingers and draw it up. So yeah, I guess the, the big question is like, do you think that having a woman as a president would make a difference for women? My hope as a recent um, mom and um, someone who had to quit their job to raise their child, I hope that it matters that our next president has ovaries because childcare is so expensive. Um, I think a woman president would be more um, sensitive to that. What do you think? I'm not into Hillary Clinton at all. I think oftentimes we are just told to vote for someone because they look like us or I'm not going to say, oh my God, she's a woman. That's all it needs. I mean, that's all I needed for Barack, to be honest. He was black and I was like, all right, I'm going to give him a chance. But like, <laughs> Hillary's flip-flop, depending on who she's talking to at the time, you know. And she still ain't sending me all them emails, honey. I'm going to see them emails, Hillary. What you hiding in them emails, girl? Do you think that if she were elected, would the whole women factor mean a thing? There's a lot of bipartisan measures that have to be made, so it's not, there's only so much she could do. Like Barack, there was only so much he could do. You know, he's a black man, and I think when we saw him come in, black people were like, oh yeah, he's going to save us. But he can't do it all by himself, you know? We still have issues plaguing the black community that his eight years he couldn't, he couldn't solve. So I don't think that, you know, if we have a female president, then women will have equal pay everywhere. Like, I don't know that it's that simple. Is it that you would like to see a woman become president, but just not this one? Yeah, maybe not that one. And, um, you know, it's a tough thing being a black woman. There's dual injustices that we face, you know? So honestly, like I have a gripe with white feminists because there's not really intersectionality. You know, it's great, we're all women, but women of color are still largely ignored by um, their white feminist counterparts. Do you think that having a woman at the head of the country would give women more confidence in leadership positions? I think when Barack became president, people were like, oh, racism is over. And then I felt like racism got super crazy. Like you got to see all the in the closet racists. They just came out. I was like, I'm not hiding anymore. We got a black president. So I think if we get a female president, we're going to see all the women hating people out there. Like it might get real tough for women in everyday lives that resent the fact that a woman's in power. If a woman got out there and was like, look what I did. Um, I said I was going to um, lower the unemployment rate, did that. Like, we were like, oh, she's a bitch. She's going to be scrutinized extra hard. Black man, scrutinized extra harder. It just doesn't matter. Like, as long as you're not what people are used to, you're going to be scrutinized extra hard. Pretty much as long as you're, you can be average if you're a white man. They're the only people that are allowed to just be average and still get jobs and things. But everybody else has to work twice as hard to prove that they belong here. Don't mess up your polish, thanks. Keep it oh, in there, I, thanks. oh, this is not gel polish? This is gel it polish. is, but keep it in there, thanks. Do you have any thoughts about our conversation? I think we all can just try one time. We tried the black man, and I say, I'm not saying it ain't work. But, you know, I just think that Hillary is the one. You know, I, that's just my opinion. And how about you? Would you like to see a woman as president? Um, who run the world? Girls. <laughs> uh -uh. <laughs> right? That's what I was supposed to say, right? That's it. She's There we go. I think we have our answer. We'll be hearing more from the Nail Bar and from Galen throughout this podcast series. 
Chris, let's leave Hillary for a moment to talk about another New York personality who may or may not be about to play a part in this campaign. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg is apparently floating the idea of a run for the presidency. Do you think he's serious? I have no idea at all whether he's serious or not. And I suspect even people much more familiar with Bloomberg and much more familiar with presidential politics than I am uh, would find it difficult to make a firm judgment about whether he's serious or not. But certainly he has an opportunity uh, which only billionaires have. The American political system is a two-party system. It's very, very difficult for third parties to organise. It's very difficult for third parties to get on the ballot. Uh, It's very difficult to run a credible presidential campaign outside of the framework of the two main parties. But the way you can do it is if you're a billionaire and you can fund the campaign out of your own pocket. That's what Ross Perot did in 1992. That's the threat that Donald Trump still holds over the Republicans, that if he's denied the Republican nomination, he can personally fund a third-party run as an independent. And this is an opportunity that Bloomberg has. Bloomberg is very, very wealthy indeed. Uh, So he has the opportunity to shake things up a bit. Um, And uh, since I quite like things being shaken up a bit, uh, I'll be watching with interest. And Finbar, if he does run, he's running on the chief executive ticket, as it were. He's the guy who knows how to run things. I think the last explicit chief executive candidate to win the US presidency was probably Hoover in the 1920s. He was the guy who knew how to run things and that didn't end well. Is there room for that kind of pitch to the American people in an age of populism? I'm the very, very wealthy guy who knows how to run stuff. Um, I don't think there is. The more recent version of this is Mitt Romney coming out of uh, his experience uh, running the Winter Olympics, um, being governor, but coming from a solid business background. He thought he had an opportunity. He thought he had a chance. He got the nomination, but he wasn't able to win the presidency. Look, initial early polling, which is early polling, take it for what it is, basically says that Bloomberg would come in at around 13 to 15 percent in a two way, three way, excuse me, between himself, uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton. He can shake things up, but no independent has won the presidency. Why would things be different now? And the other thing about him is he's another New York personality, as I described him. This is becoming a very, very New York election. How does that play, Aaron, with the rest of the country? I mean, are people starting to look at this election and feeling it's like an internal argument between New Yorkers? Well, this is interesting because recently in one of the debates, you saw a little heated exchange between Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, which is decidedly not New York, and Donald Trump, where Cruz said that Donald Trump has New York values. Cruz is a very smart individual. This is clearly a calculated attempt to draw people's attention to the fact that Donald Trump is, in fact, uh, from New York and the belief that perhaps New York is not representative of American values, uh, whatever those look like. But it is true that New York is, despite its size, is not actually that great of a representation of the American continent. Iowa actually, in many ways, is uh, ironically, uh, even though it's a much smaller state, a better representation of the country as a whole, uh, if you're just looking at demographic indicators. So this could become an issue. On the other hand, Americans haven't had problems with making the idea of the presidency becoming very much a Bush family affair or a Clinton family affair. So whether or not 
that the New York centricity of all of this uh, sticks in people's craw, I would be uh, somewhat dubious of this. But it, it could become more of an issue, I would say, in perhaps the Republican primaries than the Democratic ones. Thanks to Aaron Finbar and Chris. Before I talk to Anne-Marie Slaughter, some more views from New York about Hillary. We asked people on the streets of the snowy city whether they felt a victory for Hillary in November would represent a step forward because she would be the first woman or a step back because she's another Clinton. I understand that having another Clinton in the office, like you go Bush, Bush, Clinton, Clinton, you're like, is there anybody else out there in the world? So I understand that. It is so beyond time that we have a woman in the office that at this point it's not even about Hillary Clinton. It's just about can we have a diverse representation in the White House? Uh, a step backwards, most Americans don't like the idea of it being a dynasty. In the younger crowd, there's much less of masculine uh, characteristics like war, hate, uh, pride. And I think a female president right now would definitely keep that train going in that direction and bringing people in a closer realm to abolishing these kinds of ideals. A few years ago, I was babysitting for this little girl, and she had a book of presidents. Um, and we were going through the book, and we ended up Barack Obama. And I said, oh, maybe in 2016, Hillary, Hillary Clinton will be here. And she looked at me, and she said, but a woman can't be president. And I asked her, why? Like, why would you say that? Why can't a woman be president? And she just kind of looked at me like, well, like, why would a woman be able to be president? You're listening to Election the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Anne-Marie Slaughter, currently the CEO of the New America Foundation and previously Director of Policy Planning at the State Department under Hillary Clinton, was in the UK this week to speak about her new book, Unfinished Business. It draws on her personal experiences in academia and Washington to talk frankly about the challenges for women of trying to have it all. But I started by asking her about an influential book she wrote more than a decade ago called New World Order, which laid out the prospects for international politics in an increasingly networked world. It was an optimistic vision of the future that said we could do politics better. I am still convinced that we are moving toward a form of global governance that will be more networks of government officials and probably increasingly non-government actors to resolve global public problems. So in that regard, if you think about the Paris Conference, you know, the Paris Conference is, did not result in an international treaty between states. The Paris Conference resulted in many national leaders making commitments within networks of environment ministers uh, and NGOs uh, and businesses. And ultimately, we're not going to ever have a global parliament or a global government. Even the UN, the sort of traditional 1945 institutions are still not reformed. So I do think networks are the answer, but <laughs> they are not legitimate. One of the biggest criticisms of New World Order was that it was a vision of global technocracy, of judges and regulators. Uh, and that's come true. I mean, after the 2008 financial crisis, the financial networks are stronger than ever, but they're not legitimate. 
domestic politics is a mess. <laughs> and this question of how we have the capacity to solve a global problem like climate change or address it, we're not going to solve it, uh, th through networks of officials uh, and important non-state actors is very much on the table. And so there, it, this is going to take a long time, and we're moving toward new forms of government. You've just come back from Davos, and you'll know that seen from outside, Davos is one of the things that fuels this popular suspicion that we're moving to a technocratic age, that the new world order is actually just a group of elites who are co-opting power that used to belong to the people. And in the book, New World Order, you said the big challenge for all states was, this is how you put it, to be Janus faced, to have two faces for the world, the outward face that plugs into these networks, but also to manage expectations at the domestic level and to reconnect domestic politics to this wider network. And it seems to me that's the challenge that national politicians have not matched up to at all in the last 12 years, that if anything, the problems in domestic politics, they have not found a language in which to both speak the Davos talk and to speak the talk of popular electoral politics. Do you, do you share that view that they have failed to find the way to bridge that gap? I do share that view. And I, I understand exactly why, if you are a worker uh, or, for instance, the, the man in the airport who helped me get through security with a broken arm, uh, talked about Davos as exactly this, you know, gathering of phenomenally wealthy and privileged people for four days. Uh, and lots of good things actually get done there in terms of commitments to work on issues that affect much wider group of people. But the people themselves are not involved. And the essence of democracy is the idea of self-government and I would say certainly in the United States and increasingly in Europe, the idea that the people are governing themselves is not apparent to the people. <laughs> and so, yes, we need a new form of much more participatory politics, probably more at the local level in the United States, the state level or the city level, where people feel like they have a say in what's happening to them, which they don't feel now. And, and in many ways, they're right. They're at the mercy of much larger forces. And in the absence of that kind of local engagement and participation, we're seeing the rise of a new kind of populist politics, which is extremely critical of all sorts of international institutions. And this is true in Europe as well as the United States and is driven primarily, I think, by anger and a certain amount of it by fear, fear of these kinds of changes. Is this tide of populism going to break on some kind of harder reality, which means that different ways of doing politics will reassert themselves? Or do you think that this populism is actually a glimpse of a, a new future for democratic politics? I think that is the question of the hour. And I think about this, obviously, in the United States, it is really striking. I mean, the Republican Party is going through something that looks probably closer to the beginning of the last century when, you know, Teddy Roosevelt split the Republican Party uh, and then ultimately it came back as a very new party. So I think the, I think you're right in the first place. A lot of the populism is anger and fear. Anger, I guess, in the United States at what has basically been flat incomes for decades now while watching a small group get uh, richer and richer. Fear of terrorism, which is the new kinds of conflict that this this generation is facing. You know, I th it's hard to know. I would say in the United States, we are moving toward a 
kind of politics, again, that is more local and state, that I think will and municipal, again, driven by by cities. I think regardless of what happens in this election, the parties, if we stay with two parties, are going to have to find a way to be far more representative than they are now. And there are lots of experiments going on with deliberative polling, with with using technology for genuine participation. It's probably going to take decades to actually sort itself out. Do we have decades for this to sort itself out? Because some of the more lurid accounts of what might be coming in American politics, depending on what happens in this election, imply that the system is on the brink of breaking in some fundamental way. That there are two populist candidates, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Were they to be nominated? And it's not inconceivable they could both be the nominees. You have a system that looks like it's really going to struggle to cope with the kind of outcome that it produces? I mean, do you have any fears that the system, rather than evolving over the next 20 to 30 years, will hit some kind of break point? I've been thinking about that a lot because I've been thinking about the 1930s. And of course, you know, there are plenty of analogies in the American press. There are people who really do see a fascist in in Donald Trump. Uh, The same kind of scapegoating, you know, when you say I'm going to build a wall and shut out all Muslims, that's that's talk that sounds more like uh, some of the worst uh, excesses in in European politics in in the last century. So I think about that a lot. It is not impossible that you would have something that looks more like revolution. But I guess I I do have faith in the majority of the American people. What you're hearing now is a minority largely of angry white men who have lost a lot (laughs) over the past decades. They really have. There are many people you're not hearing from. And I actually think if you remember when John McCain uh, named Sarah Palin, that lost him the 2008 election because very quickly people thought we can't actually be led by someone who thinks foreign policy is about looking at Russia. (laughs) And I do think as the primaries continue, particularly if there's another attack and there's likely to be another attack, people are going to realize, you know, this is really a dangerous time in the world and we have to have someone who is intelligent enough and experienced enough to lead the nation. And the analogy with the 1930s brings to mind a president, Franklin Roosevelt, who not only reformed many aspects of American government, but also took on the question of fear famously by trying to persuade Americans that they had nothing to be afraid of but fear itself. And President Obama, perhaps not at such a level of rhetorical grandeur, but has tried something similar. He's been trying to tell the American people that some of their fears might be, and of course it's dangerous territory for him because if you tell the people that their fears are overblown, it sounds like you're not taking them seriously. And of course he was scarred with the whole, what Sarah Palin would call the kind of gun-clinging agenda. So it's, it's a very delicate and narrow line that he has to tread. But do you think he could have done more or any other politician could do more to try to persuade the American people that some of the things that they're afraid of are the wrong things to be afraid of. Because it is one of the challenges of democracy. You have to recognize that the people's fears are real, but they're not always the right things to be afraid of. 
Well, I think that when you think about the difference between Roosevelt and Obama, it is the best illustration of how the fragmentation of our media has changed our politics because Franklin Roosevelt had fireside chats. You know, my father remembers standing around the radio, you know, everybody in the family sitting in the living room. Obama is lucky if he can get, you know, a certain 10, 20, 30 million people listening out of a country of 250, even to the State of the Union. So I do think there are things he could have done, and I'll say that in a minute. But I also think this notion that of the bully pulpit that, that Franklin Roosevelt used so well and Teddy Roosevelt uh, started is gone. Uh, and so that ability to lead through the power of your rhetoric and your force of your personality is much diminished, unless you're Donald Trump, who knows how to manipulate the media. But I do think also that President Obama has not used the challenge to the country that I would use, which is to say, you know, we're we're bigger and stronger than this. I remember writing something comparing 9-11 to 7-7, to the attacks in Britain. And it was extraordinary. The British did not go to pieces. They basically, it was, you know, keep calm and carry on. And it was really impressive to see. And there's a, you know, at some point you have to say to the American people, look, you know, we're made of stronger stuff than this and challenge us to rise above what is going to be situation normal for certainly this generation where it's a new kind of war within and it's going to be random. But, you know, is it really worse than what I grew up with worrying about nuclear holocaust where, you know, people had shelters in their house? And I think there needs to be more challenge to our strength and moral fiber, really, as a country. And look at look at other countries and realize we look kind of um, afraid in a in a not in a not good way. It's always nice to hear that British politics looks good from the outside <laughs> because from the inside, I'm sure a lot of people would say we feel like we're in something similar. And certainly, European politics has these same waves of populism riding right over it, and in some countries more than in Britain. But in Britain, we've seen the election of Jeremy Corbyn, a populist of a certain kind on the left. We also have a populist on the right, Nigel Farage. When Americans, and you can answer this, either the political establishment such as it is or the American public, when they look at Europe, what do they see at the moment? Do they see a continent that in its travails is giving them a glimpse of their future, the the migration challenge and the ways in which government is really struggling, particularly at the European level, to rise to the challenges? Or do they see a, a politics and a continent that, as you've just described it, is holding itself together under fairly serious strains of the kind that America is looking at now. Is Europe a glimpse of the future for better or worse for Americans, or do most Americans not care? I don't think most most Americans think Europe's a glimpse of the future. And I, you know, I'm half Belgian and understand Europe and have lived in, you know, gone back and forth between Europe. I do think, you know, in the business community, they look at Europe and they think Europe can't get its economic house in order and they still think the Eurozone will come apart, which I do not think is true. And there's a constant downplaying of what really they should see the EU as a whole is the largest economy in the world. And for all its problems, it is steadily, you know, surmounting the crises as they come. I think many other Americans do look at Europe and see 
a very nasty uh, kinds of politics. Many Americans just don't understand what the European Union is at all. But that said, I think, you know, if you think of the images of 2015, you think of European leaders joining arms on the streets of Paris, marching, defying the forces of terrorism and extremism. And that's a powerful image. And again, for the political establishment, you look at the British election and the great surprise was that the majority of Britons said, actually, thank you, we'll stick with the Tory government. It may have its flaws, but it's you know, doing okay economically and we're not tempted. Labor hasn't shown us that it can actually govern. And actually, Nigel Farage did not win what many people thought he would. So kind of keep calm and carry on is, I think, part of the message uh, that that European politics is sending, even if it doesn't grab the headlines. In Britain, part of the challenge, which is similar to what's going on in the United States, is that a two-party system is struggling to accommodate what now is a wide range of opinion, a lot of it fracturing around the edges, particularly. So yes, it's true the British people chose a kind of keep calm and carry on prime minister, but the Labour Party has now chosen a very radical alternative to that. And we're getting closer to something like what has been happening in the United States, partly in the United States, I think, because of gerrymandering, which is that in primary elections, the more extreme bits of the two parties are dominating the electoral narrative. And what we don't know in Britain is whether an election of Jeremy Corbyn by the members of the Labour Party, it's not in an open primary, it's actually a fairly narrow electorate, could possibly translate into national electoral appeal. So populism in Britain could still be a minority pursuit. We just don't know yet. But we're going to get an answer in the United States more quickly than that as to whether populism is a minority pursuit. I mean, is is the American election likely to revert to type, which is that the primaries highlight views that are more at the margins and that as we move nearer to the national election, politics moves back to the centre? Do you have a sense yet of whether the old cycles are likely to repeat themselves or not? Everyone in the United States, every pundit who has said we will revert <laughs> has been proved wrong thus far. So all of us are highly cautious because that view said that Trump would never last as long as he has and that, you know, in the Republican Party, Trump and Cruz together are miles ahead of not only Rubio, who himself is not an established candidate, but that Jeb Bush is 5 percent or less. Something much more fundamental is going on. Now, it could be, again, the splitting of the Republican Party. You could go back to when the Democrats nominated George McGovern and lost every state but one to Richard Nixon. It caused a major shift in the Democratic Party. So that may be what's happening, that the Republican Party is going to have to redefine itself. I do think, as in Britain, what we're seeing is something more fundamental, and it is, again, the people being chosen, a Trump or a Corbyn or a Sanders, part of their appeal is they're being seen to speak truth, that they're recognizing a reality that conventional politicians gloss over, the whole idea of spin and spin doctors, which is both in Britain and in the United States. There's a there's a real rejection, again, of of the idea that representative democracy is actually representing the people. So if I had to predict, I think Trump could well be the Republican candidate. 
I think he will lose to Hillary Clinton if he is. I think Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic candidate, but it's not bad to have her challenged. Um, She's better when she's fighting. But I think the fallout is going to be more lasting. I don't think this is just another cycle of radical primaries and moderate election. I think it is something, again, that probably will see the change more at the state level first, but ultimately is going to have to change what I think is a broken political system at the federal level. So that moves us nicely onto the book that you're in the UK to talk about. We talked about a book that you published a while back. So just to finish with some questions about Hillary Clinton, but also about both the symbolism and the reality of the United States potentially electing its first woman president. You say in your book, Unfinished Business, that the symbolism is not just having a woman in the White House, but having a woman of a certain age, 69, I think is how old Hillary will be, um, at the height of her powers. And what that says about women and their careers and the longevity of a woman's career and the different stages and acts that it moves through. I mean, is that for you the the main symbolic significance of a Hillary Clinton victory, what it says about the shape of a woman's life and a woman's career and the possibilities of what can happen? Or does it have just more straightforward, practical, political significance? Well, the symbolism is, is enormous, but so would be the substance. So, yes, I mean, the first point, it still is enormously important to have a first to have a woman president. I mean, you can talk about raising girls to believe they can be anything. But until you've had a woman president, you know, it still looks like the top job is pretty is pretty limited uh, to, to men. So that's enormous. But I do think it's very significant that she would be the first grandmother president. And I point out all the time that she did not start her political career until her daughter Chelsea went to college. Now, of course, she was first lady. But really, if you look from the time Chelsea was born uh, until she went to college, Hillary Clinton subordinated her career to Bill Clinton's career. Once Chelsea went to college, she she ran for the Senate. She became secretary of state. She ran for president. She's running for president again all in what I call in the book phase three. And I actually think women and men, particularly since our children should probably expect to live to 100, should think about their career in terms of, well, there are going to be these periods where you're going to be more intensely involved in family, whether taking care of your children or your parents. And there are going to be periods where you're probably going to have several careers. And we should plan for that. We should continue to take people, and they are largely women now, who are 55 or, or even 60, who are have got 15 to 20 years ahead of them and a lot of talent. We should be taking them very seriously. And in the U.S., a number are running for office. But I also think Hillary Clinton would push policies that would benefit families, not just women, but what I call building an infrastructure of care that, you know, paid family leave, parental leave. We do In the United States, we do not even have statutory maternity leave, much less parental leave generally, focusing on daycare, focusing on investing in our children as the, the critical public policy issue it is, focusing on taking care of our elders. So, Fortunately, because she was Secretary of State and because she's tough, she ha- she will have no problem being Commander-in-Chief, but she would also realize being President is much more than being Commander-in-Chief and would really advance the agenda President Obama has started of enabling Americans to care for each other and to be cared for when, th- when they need it. Because I think it's true more broadly that to have an American President of Hillary Clinton's age would send a signal 
when politicians seem to be getting younger, I mean, it's true that Trump and Sanders are angry old men, but the professional politicians, Rubio and Cruz and so on, and in Britain, it's certainly the case, it's actually really hard for that third phase of life to get back into politics. It seems to be that the professional politicians, the ones who've made a career out of it from relatively young, are the ones that come through as a sort of block. And that's been the case in British politics. And again, Corbyn is the exception, but it's the populists who are the exception, not what you might call the mainstream professionals. So there would be something really exciting about that. But it's a real challenge as well for women and for men to get back into politics past a certain point because politics has kind of been sewn up by the insiders. <laughs> so I just wanted to finish because in your book you focus on the challenges for women and for men uh, trying to have it all when it's impossible to have it all in really often high-pressured workplaces in the finance sector, in law and so on. But it's probably even more extreme in politics. I mean, politics is an incredibly demanding profession and it puts pressures, time pressures on people that are almost impossible to kind of move in and out of once you're in the game. So what would your advice to be, say, to young students at Cambridge, thinking the students I teach, thinking of a career in politics, particularly the women who really can't see how it could possibly work for them? How could you make politics work for you in the way that you talk about in your book? So I think you can, again, do politics in stages, as I think you should be able to do any profession where you have an initial stage where you're young and you can work really hard and devote yourself to being elected, all the, in the United States, the endless fundraising or the door knocking or whatever it is. Uh, and then I think there is a phase where if you've established yourself, you should be able to move into something that's easier. And actually, when David Miliband stepped down as foreign secretary, there were many of us on both sides of the pond, I think, who expected him to be what Kathy Ashton became, the, the first foreign minister for the European Union. And he was very clear that part of what he wanted to do was spend more time with his family. Uh, now, in his case, he left politics completely. But had he stayed, I don't think it would have been impossible then for him to move back to an elected position. As I know three or four women my age who, when their children have left home, or even look at Elizabeth Warren, right, who <laughs> say, you know, look, I've got lots of networks. I've got lots of relationships. I can find backers. The country would be better off if there were more women like me running it, <laughs> and I'm going to enter politics. And I think I, I do think Hillary Clinton will have a big impact. She is obviously not a precedent in the sense that very few of us are starting from first lady. right? So that, but this idea that there are multiple phases, I think, is something any of us, if we think about it early and plan for this period where we're going to want to slow down in ways or move laterally, is quite doable. There are people in Britain who are hoping that David Miliband's coming back sooner <laughs> rather than later. And as you say in the book, spending more time with your family, it's become a euphemism for kind of bailing out. Yeah. But it often isn't. It's exactly. often the real deal. It is still, I think, a challenge for anyone of a younger generation who's thinking about politics to look that far ahead and to think, well, this is something I could do in another phase of my life. What more broadly is the kind of career advice that you would give to young people coming out of university now? One of the things that strikes me about university, and again, you touched on it in the book, we squeeze all the education in at the yes. beginning. And these people, their life expectancy is something, might, you know, on some accounts, it's sort of 200. Uh, they've got a long working life ahead of them. And people have to move in and out of careers, of education, and possibly of politics. I mean, I would, if I was going to be optimistic, I would be hopeful that, among other things, 
politics becomes the kind of career that you can move in and out of. But we haven't got there yet. We are not there yet. It's In some ways, it's becoming harder to get in and out. Am I right to be optimistic that we, we could be on the phase of that shift, that people see politics as something where genuinely it is part of that life, arc of life, where careers and education and public service mix together? Well, I must say I, I'm, I'm not happy to hear you say that in Britain you have to be a lifelong politician because I often say in the United States that if we had a system like Britain where you have public financing of elections and short campaigns rather than two-year campaigns, that I would have run for office a long time ago. So I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, it, that from your point of view uh, it still seems so difficult. But you said a couple very important things. One is – Uh, and this I tell my sons all the time, that for their lifetime, education will be lifelong from multiple sources and that they will be probably learning online at some point. They may go back and spend a year somewhere. But the idea that higher education is something you do between 18 and 22 is just not going to hold up and shouldn't hold up. It's actually a much more exciting view of your life that you'll have periods where you can get educated for different things. The second thing is, You say to young men as well as to young women, you need to think about your career in terms of when you're going to have a family. There are going to be these periods of your life where you need to think now about how you're going to work in a way that will allow you to really get the most out of what is a pretty fabulous time. You know, having children, even if it's hard, it's also pretty wonderful. I say in the book, think about a portfolio of skills and experiences that you want to acquire over a lifetime. And that can be, you know, leadership, management, writing ability, speaking ability, fundraising, and think about all the different ways you could acquire those skills rather than thinking about, I'm going to have a career in one job and one firm, which certainly is not going to happen. Thank you to Anne-Marie Slaughter. Now back to our panel. If I said the names Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee to you, What would that mean? They were the last two winners of the Republican caucus in Iowa. It's a strange way to kick off the process of choosing the leader of the free world. Aaron, does it seem strange to you? It doesn't, but that might be because I've read about it. Uh, So, actually, the Iowa caucuses, to kick off uh, the presidential race, so to speak, uh, it's an accident of history. It's a result of rule changes that the National Democratic Party passed in 1972, and I won't get into that because it's it's fairly arcane. But a lot of people say, why should a farm state with a relatively small population start off the sequential process of choosing candidates for the country? Uh, whereas they say in New Hampshire, right, well, Iowans pick corn, but we pick the president. But actually, as I was saying earlier, Iowa is fairly representative of the country as a whole, when you look at major demographic and socioeconomic indicators. And the thing about a caucus is that the people who get involved, it's a much smaller percentage of the electorate than in even a primary race, but they are much more engaged in politics. They're much more interested, whether you're talking about Republicans or Democrats, they are the type of citizens that we say we want to have in a democracy. And I'm largely cribbing here. I'm going to plug a book by uh, David Redlosk and his colleagues called Why Iowa that makes this point uh, very strongly. So it's not a perfect means of electing uh, uh, or choosing candidates to run for president, but there is no such thing. So just remind us what actually happens in a caucus to those of us who've never been in one. They get together in a room in a school hall or a farm building and they split into 
two or three? I doubt you'd want to be in a farm building in a, in a winter in Iowa. Uh, but yes, you generally gather in some municipal building, whether it's a classroom or a school gymnasium or a church. And depending on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, this process uh, is, is either kind of somewhat orderly or somewhat chaotic. So Democrats, it's, it's something of a free-for-all. After uh, the chair does a head count to see how many people are in the room, uh, eventually what you get to is a precinct captains for different candidates going to different corners of the room and trying to attract people into their corner using persuasion, cajoling, food, guilt, right? I drive your son to baseball practice in the summers, get over here and vote for my candidate. Uh, as Will Rogers said, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, that's kind of the impression you get, but it is kind of the democratic process in action. Not to say that the Republican caucus isn't the democratic process in action. It just takes about half as long as uh, the Democratic side. The Republicans... Uh, tend to just simply vote by paper ballot after about a half hour of speeches, although there have been some rule changes in Iowa regarding the Republican caucus there. I suspect it's still the same now as it was in 2012. But uh, yes, they're usually finishing having coffee and, and donuts and relaxing at the diner when the Democrats are still trying to pull their neighbors by the ears into the various corners of the gymnasium. And Fimbal, seen from the outside, the thing that always strikes me about the American presidential system that makes it unique is that the states control how they select the people who are going to go to the convention to choose the candidates for the presidency. For a national democracy, it is, I think, unparalleled the extent to which different parts of the country do it differently. Does that make it weird? I mean, to, to allow the states so much control over the process of choosing a national leader, because as we go through this process, we'll see different states do do it very, very differently. They do do it differently, but I don't think it leads to a massively different outcome state by state. If you transported some of the approaches in Iowa or New Hampshire into some of the later states in California and Texas, I don't think you'd see a massive difference. What you're seeing is the history of the evolution of America as a political state. And what's really interesting to me, rather than that the states do it differently, is the sequence and how that comes into play depending on the party rules and how the negotiation about which states happen where and just the length of time. I mean, as everybody said, it's the eternal campaign, the length of time it takes to run, the amount of money it, it takes to run. Th these are more important to me than the differences state to state. Chris, is it weird to you? Do you look at it and think it's democracy, but not as we know it? I think it's a very strange process. Uh, I think selecting a candidate for a national party in America is always going to be a complicated process because so many interests are involved, so much money is involved, uh, so many different states are involved. Uh, but looking from the outside, it does seem extraordinary that these two states, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, should have so much attention. Aaron's drawn attention to how Iowa looks demographically normal, but a lot of people are struck by the thought that Iowa and New Hampshire are a lot more white than many, many parts of the United States. And the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, they do conjure into view this sort of romantic image of active citizens and in New Hampshire, the New England town meeting and so on. And that is a happy image of engaged democratic citizens. The mental picture that's constructed is also one of... Um, 
white Americans doing their thing together. And then it's only later when, whether the contest moves to South Carolina or New Mexico or some of the other places, that we get a much wider range of Americans participating in large numbers in the primaries, whether African Americans or Latino Americans. And we get input from populations in the big cities. Erin, one thing that is perhaps distinctive about Iowa is that it has a relatively high proportion of families who have members who have served in the armed forces during America's wars, and there have been a few wars over the past 10 years. And I have seen it given as an explanation for why Iowan politics is more polarised, actually, in that it does divide people. That is, if you know people who have fought in these wars and you think these wars are a bad thing, that really turns you against them. And if you think that these wars are things that you should support and you know people who have lost family members and so on, that really makes you angry about the people who've turned against them. And Iowan politics does look quite polarised at the moment. Does this make it different? I mean, America is polarised, but is Iowa maybe more polarised than the rest of America? I would be hard-pressed to say that Iowa is more polarized than the rest of America. I was actually unfamiliar with the statistic of of how many uh, Iowan families have members or know people who have served in the military and served in either Iraq or Afghanistan. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because, again, uh, foreign policy is my focus, and I think it's very important. What you oftentimes see in caucuses and primaries is, despite perhaps the backgrounds of people participating in them, is a startling lack of attention uh, to foreign policy. So I would actually be somewhat skeptical that that would make too much of a difference. This is not to say that Americans are entirely ignorant of foreign policy or they don't care about it whatsoever, but it's very much contingent on what is happening in the country. And as the country has drawn down from Iraq and Afghanistan, I would say that uh, unless Afghanistan becomes much worse as as U.S. troops continue to draw down to a level of 10,000, unless there's a major uh, attack against the United States or one of its allies by ISIS or an affiliated group, I would be surprised to see this type of issue, a national security issue, really put a wedge between Iowans and really influence participation in the presidential selection process. Thanks to Aaron Finbar and Chris, to our special guest, Anne-Marie Slaughter, to Galen Druk for reporting from New York, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, I'll be talking to the economist and venture capitalist Bill Janeway about inequality, Silicon Valley, and what presidential politics means in the age of Google. We'll also be reviewing what happened in Iowa and discussing the road ahead. Do please join us then, and do visit our website at Polis Election Podcast, where you can comment, subscribe, and much more. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University Podcast, Election. <laughs>